is a Woodside Church podcast. Yeah, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for, for your favor upon us this morning, Lord. And thank you for your favor upon Jonathan this morning, Lord. Father, I pray as you bring the word of God, that Father, you will use him powerfully this morning, Jesus. May you give him each and every word that he's going to speak this morning, Lord Jesus. Just start giving boldness, Lord. Father, I pray for strength in him, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. Uh, most of you will know me. Um, if you don't, if you're new for the first time, you're very welcome. How do I follow that? <laughs> Seriously, what am I going to say? Uh, most of what I have to say has been covered in one form or another in the worship of the words already. Um, but that's fine. Let's go. Um, we have, as you may know, we've got a series running at the moment with the, the leaders of the church talking about vision for the future. And intermingled with that, we have a series called Jesus Meets, where we look at people encountering Jesus in the Bible. Um, and today I have Jesus Meets a Tired Fisherman. And that's going to be Peter. Um, and I'm going to call him Peter, even though as I read the Bible, he's called Simon because Jesus renamed him Peter later on. And I'm used to calling him Peter. And although it says Jesus meets a tired fisherman, I'm going to rewrite the title a little bit in a while. Um, so <clears throat> let's go to Luke chapter 5, um, verses 1 to 11. Now this is not Peter's first encounter with Jesus. He was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. Um, and in Luke's gospel, he spent the previous evening with Jesus in his house, um, teaching and healing people. Um, but this is Peter's encounter with Jesus um, on the shores of Lake Galilee. So Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's Galilee, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now I want to go through that story. I don't want to go through it again. I want to draw out two things from that story and talk about them for a little bit. And then at the end, I'll come back to an older version of Peter who knows some more stuff than he knows in this story. Um, the first thing I want to pick up is Peter's change in attitude to Jesus. And that's exemplified in the vocabulary he uses before and after this great catch of fish. So if you have the next slide up, Richard, before Jesus' miracle, Peter calls him master. And that's a term of respect, of esteem. He's been teaching around and doing miracles around Peter's hometown. And Jesus knows he's someone special. He calls him master, respect and esteem. But then there's a miracle. Jesus does a miracle. It's a miracle in Peter's area of expertise. He knows fish don't do like that, don't behave like that. 
Fish will hide in the deep sea when it's light. They go away from the light and hide down. They don't come to the surface in great big shoals. And the chance that you'd get a great big soul, shoal doing what they don't do at exactly the time when Jesus told them to put their nets in, he knows that's not possible. And so Peter is saying, who is this? Who on earth is this? Now, Andrew had introduced Peter to Jesus and said, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior God's promised, the King that we're waiting for. And Peter is concluding here, there is something about God in this man. Now, Peter is not doing theology here. He's not looking at this miracle and saying, oh, yes, well, that means you're the second person of the Trinity, which they didn't know existed yet. Um, and you become incarnate, which he didn't know could happen yet. And you're going to die for us, which they didn't understand from the scriptures yet. Peter is just looking and saying, who is this? This is something of God in this man. <clears throat> and so his vocabulary changes, and it changes to the word Lord. And that's the word when they were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek New Testament. When there was the Hebrew word that talks about the power and authority of God, this is the same word that they used, kurios. Um, you may know kyrie eleison, the, the, the musical thing, Lord have mercy, kurios. And so Peter is on his knees before someone he's calling Lord. He doesn't quite know why. He's got no theology for it, but he knows there's something about this man that is of God. <clears throat> and we should go through that same process. You see, there's many in the world who are happy for Jesus to be a teacher. Because if it's a teacher, you can take the bits that you like. You say, he's right about this, he's wrong about that. Many fewer are happy to say Jesus is Lord, because if you're Lord, you can command. If Jesus is our Lord, what he says goes. I don't get to pick and choose. And we should go through the same transition that Peter went through with the miracle of the fish because of the miracle of the resurrection. So Paul in Romans says this, <clears throat> Romans chapter one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. We know Jesus was descended from King David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we look at the resurrection and we say, because Jesus was raised from the dead, he is who he claimed to be. He is the son of God and therefore he is the Lord with the right of authority over our lives and the right to command us. That's how we are supposed to treat Jesus. That's what Peter was doing without any kind of theology around it. We know more than Peter did then, but the heart is still the same. Jesus, I see who you are, I see what you've done, and you are Lord. <clears throat> now, the resurrection is not popular um, in the world at the moment. People will say the resurrection never happened. All sorts of people, it couldn't have happened. The basic problems people have with the re resurrection are twofold. First of all, it's scientifically impossible. Well, yeah, that's kind of the point. You see, if the question you're asking is, is there someone greater than science, greater than nature, who can command nature and it will change its laws to do what he says rather than what science says? If that's what you're looking for, you're asking that question. The only evidence that will prove that that's true is something impossible. And actually, the historical evidence for the resurrection, if, the, if it wasn't a resurrection, if it was Jesus went to Rome, the historical evidence we have is astoundingly good. Nobody would reject it if it wasn't impossible. They'd just say, yeah, Jesus went to Rome. Yeah. That's what the sources say. We have much better evidence for 
the resurrection of Jesus, if you're not saying it's impossible, than we do for lots of the stuff that Caesar did around about the same time. Uh, so first thing is scientifically impossible. Yeah, but that's the point. Second thing is it means he's Lord. And we do not want to submit our lives in this age of individual freedom to the lordship of another, whoever it is. First point, Jesus is Lord. Second point, Peter's strange reaction. Now, Peter is a Jew in the first century. They've been waiting for the Messiah, for the king. What is his reaction when he concludes this is probably him? So if we can extend the diagram, please, Richard. It goes from master to Lord to go away. Yeah, did you notice that? Yeah, here's the person we've been waiting for for 400 years. Go away. What is it that Peter, why is it that Jesus, Peter, Peter says Jesus must go away? If we flip on the next diagram, Richard, sin. Peter says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And so, <clears throat> as far as we know, Peter wasn't especially sinful. Some of the other apostles and disciples, probably a bit more so than Peter from what we know of them. But Peter, as I say, was a man living in the Jewish nation in the first century with all of the Jewish history of God revealing himself to them to reveal to the rest of the world. And he knew some stuff deep in him, um, which we need to look at. So, as I said, I'm rewriting this a little bit. My new title is Jesus Meets a Sinful Fisherman. Okay, He was tired, yeah? Jesus meets a sinful fisherman. And if you want to look at sin, good principle in looking at anything, um, any topics in the Bible, is go back to the first point where it's mentioned or it happened. So we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. This is Adam and Eve in the garden that God put them in, gave them a good world, placed them in the garden to look after it. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now I'm just going to draw out three things from this story. We know it doesn't go well from then on. I'm hoping everybody knows the story well enough to know that there were consequences to that. Um, But I'm just going to pick out three things from this story. And number one is at the heart of that first sin. I hope you can Is that legible? Yeah. At the heart of that first sin, and in so much of sin since, is, in my opinion, God should do this. God ought to do this. God wouldn't be bothered about that. That's really there at the heart of what Eve is saying. There was nothing wrong with the fruit. It was a beautiful fruit. Look at it from every angle. It's lovely. It's tasty. Tasted good when she tasted it. The only thing wrong with it, as far as she could, nothing as far as she could see, the only thing wrong with the fruit that God had forbidden it. But that was enough for this to be sin. So at the heart of sin is saying, I want to make the decisions about what's right and wrong for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Second point in this line, sin likes the reassurance of affirming company. 
She gave, an, gave it to her husband so he could eat it too, so they could both be in it together, both agreeing that God ought to be like this, not like that. <clears throat> we can see this all over the world. Colin preached a few weeks ago. There you are, Colin. And he said there are some online preachers that are really good and will build you up. And there are. And I, and I know one of the ones he, he referenced, and that's absolutely true. They can do you a world of good. But there are lots and lots of online preachers who will drag you into lies. Just looking at this, these first chapters in Genesis over the last three or four months, I've come across one who takes the story of Adam and Eve and maps it directly onto the American political right agenda. And you couldn't possibly go with him unless you were already there. That is a sinful use of scripture. Because he's not looking at what God says. He's saying, I want it to mean this. In my opinion, this. And I found another one. who I, I couldn't, couldn't believe this. Colin's probably seen this one as well. Um, who goes to that story in Genesis and says, well, actually, what you've got here is a parable. And it says God and it says the serpent. But actually, it's a God figure and a serpent figure. And actually, the good one here is the serpent because he's freeing Eve up to follow her desires. Yeah. Now, leave aside the hundreds of preachers who will tell you that God's main purpose for you is to be rich. <laughs> no. Okay. Sin likes the reassurance of the firming company. Um, <clears throat> number three, the consequences. First consequence is separation from God. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden where they had intimacy with God and they have to make their own way in the world without that continual conversation with the creator that they used to have. Let's <clears throat> go on. And th- th- this is what Peter knows. This is why Peter is saying, go away from me, Lord. He knows that sin separates from God. Within three chapters, the consequences of sin are that God looks at the world and says, every inclination of the thoughts of the heart of mankind is evil. And so he wipes them out with the flood. For eating a piece of fruit? No, for stepping out of God's lordship and deciding we're going to do it ourselves. Because when we do it ourselves, we don't have God's view. We don't know all the consequences of everything we choose to do. We also are very focused on ourselves. We have a tendency to say, this is right because this benefits me. And if you doubt that, watch yourself when you're next driving. When somebody pulls out of a junction in front of you a bit too eagerly, and you say, ah, my right of way. And then when you are waiting at a junction, there's somebody coming, yeah, I'll fit there. And the person slams on the horn. You say, there was room. We just love to make it right for us. I'm in the right here. And I've watched myself do that driving. I thought, (laughs) anyway. um, So the Bible's view of sin, stepping away from God, being separate from God, stepping away from the creator who knows how it all is meant to work. Now look at the world. Look at what this explains. Look at our environmental situation. All the things that we have done which are ruining the good world that God gave us. Look at our political situation. We've had monarchy, we've had capitalism, democracy, even communism. And what we managed to turn all of those into is a rich few 
and the poor many who get oppressed by the rich few. Is there any better explanation for that than we've got a good world, humankind with huge potential, but a fatal twist in our character and in our lives that says we're not following God and we just mess everything up. But when we come to look at sin, there's one kind of sin uh, that Jesus said we must, must be most concerned about overall. Um, so the kind of sin Jesus says we should be most concerned about is, any takers? Our own, our own sin. Jesus told this parable. He said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And it's a ridiculous picture, plank in your eye, but he's exaggerating to make the point. You look at your own sin. You get right with yourself before you start looking at other people. Paul says something similar when he writes to the Jews, um, to, the, to the Roman church, sorry. He says to the Jews, you've got all the law of God and you're very keen on preaching it. Are you following it? <clears throat> We're not to be unconcerned about other sin. It doesn't say you'd never help your brother, but you have to deal with your own first. And to that we say, well, I'm all right, aren't I? Um, yeah, surely, I'm okay. I, I, I do good things. Where do I sin? Well, John, Jesus' best friend, writing a letter um, towards the tail end of the Bible, says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Paul, again, writing to the Romans, say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus told a parable about two men praying. One said, thank you, God, that I'm so good, that I do all the things right that you want me to do, that I tithe and I do good to the... Um, Sorry, I, can't, I should have written it down, I can't remember exactly. But he says, basically, thank you that you've made me such a good person. The other one says, sorry, God. I'm sorry I'm such a sinner. I'm so dirty. And Jesus said, this is the man who goes away justified before the Father, not the one who thought he had it all sorted out. The Bible... Okay, but I'm not a major sinner. Yeah, there may be little bits and pieces around, but I'm not a murderer or an adulterer. What does the Bible say about that? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You've heard that it said, don't murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our sin before others and our little sins, our heart sin, is as serious as the things that we do, our attitudes. I could probably do quite a good job of preaching, teaching, going online and criticizing the world's current view on sex and identity. And it would be something along the lines of, you have a broken nature, not every desire that you have is to be indulged, come and follow the word of God instead of following your broken nature. And that would come a lot better from me if I was 13 stone. Because if I preach that at somebody, they can say right back to me, what about your relationship with food? Are all those desires right? Are you following your own preaching? This is what it means to look at your own heart and your own clank in your eye before looking at other people. I'm not wrong. 
but I'm not in a place to say that. Now, you can't look at everybody who's carrying some weight and say, they're sinful, there's lots of reasons, but I do not have anything hormonal, nothing medical, I just eat wrong and exercise wrong. Okay, and there's a sin in the Bible called gluttony. And as I've prepared for this, I've realized this is not a health issue. I mean, it is, but primarily it's a sin issue. Yeah? And we, you can come to the place with lots of stuff where you say, the problem I have is sin. Yeah? Now, this may be uncomfortable to be sitting there hearing somebody say that. Imagine what it's like to be the one saying it. But we have to be the church where we can say these things, where we can share these things and where it's safe. Yeah? What I said, what I say would carry more weight if I carried less. Yeah. And my apologies if the idiom doesn't work in Ukrainian. Sorry. Um, so maybe that's what it is. I was going to talk about pride. That's another one I battle with. It's, we have a tree in our garden that's got roots going under the whole garden. And trees keep popping up trying to grow all over the place. You don't know where, they, where the net one's going to come from. That's what pride is like. Um, and if you think you don't have pride... Listen to yourself talking, and when somebody tells a story about, I don't know, a bad customer, ex- customer service experience they've had, do you then want to come in with yours? And do you sometimes want to make it that little bit worse um, so that yours is better than theirs was? That's pride. That's pride. Um, but maybe your thing is honoring parents, coveting other people's possessions, gossip, all of these things that the Bible says are wrong, and we tend to say, well, that's all right. I understand me. God wouldn't condemn this, would he? And the answer is, yes, he would. Yes, he would. And that's before we talk about the sins of omission. Um, the th- sins we don't do. Like, isn't it all about loving your neighbor? Well, yes, but James says, if you see your neighbor with a need and you don't meet it, how is the love of God in you? But we have the internet. and There's so much need out there. What am I going to do about that? I don't know the answer to that one. But I know God's standard is you see needs and you meet them. So, <laughs> I've been skipping over stuff and I'm still, uh, I'm, I think I'm going to go beyond time. So there is some good news in this. And the next slide is good news. And I'm going to, the end of history, Revelation, the last two chapters. Um, and John sees what's going to happen in the future. And he sees this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. Remember, separation from God, God at the end brings us back again. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God fixes creation. He is going to fix creation. Now, the trouble is, with everything I've told you so far, that new earth is going to be empty, because it's not going to have sinful people in it. Why We ruined this one with our sin, Why would we be in the next one? And it goes on, further on in Revelation, to say, murderers, adulterers, the liars, the immoral, they're not going to be there. And what do we do? Because I've been angry, so that means I'm equivalent to a murderer, so that means I'm not going to be there. Everything I've said so far, God remakes a new earth, and it's empty of people. 
But what are we going to do? Sharon gave us a word last week about God's love. God's love, how much God loves us, how much he wants us to be there with him. But we have this thing in the way, this sin that's separating us from him. So what are we going to do about that? We are going to do nothing. We can't. We are not clean enough to deal with our own sin. But there's a principle in the Bible. In Hebrews, God says, the law requires nearly everything. This was everything that was used in sort of um, sacrifice rituals. Nearly everything to be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So blood needs to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. There needs to be some payment. And blood is special in the Bible. You know, there's a lot of talk about blood in the Bible. It's something special as a representative of life. And then in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses from sin. And we've been singing about that this morning. Jesus dying on the cross, that's his glory. Because as he did that, it paid and cleansed our sins. We are tempted to say, well, why does that have to happen? Why does there have to be blood? I don't think that's right. And what we're saying there is, God, in my opinion, you shouldn't do it this way. I don't know why that is the case, except that God says. Come back to Peter. This is an older Peter. He's gone through a a lot more. He's seen Jesus live, seen Jesus die, seen him rise and ascend to heaven. And he now knows that sin need not separate him from God anymore. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you back to God. No more go away from me. I can be brought back to God. So we're done. We're happy, aren't we? Jesus has paid for sin. It's all done. We can forget about it now. And unfortunately, that's not quite the case. Because it's not automatic. Jesus paid the price for our sin. But that didn't automatically save everybody in the world from their sin and make them able to have that restored relationship with God. And I am very nearly done. Um, If you go to Acts 2, this is Peter again. This is the first sermon ever preached um, when the church was set up. And Peter stood up and addressed the crowd And he says, this is to the end of it, towards the end of it, it's quite long. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three things Peter says. The first one is repent. And that's where you look at your sin and you say, I understand that this is offensive to God. I understand that this separates me from God. I understand that things that I may think are good are things that God says are not. And I'm going to turn my back on those. And as far as is possible, when I see something that I understand that God doesn't want me to do anymore, I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn away from that. That's what repentance is. No time to talk about being baptized. It's the next step. 
coming into God's people and a, a step of obedience to say, yes, Jesus has washed me, made me clean of my sins. <clears throat> I'll come to the Holy Spirit in a minute. So repentance, conscious turning away from sin. That was preached by John the Baptist before Jesus, was preached by Jesus, was preached by Peter, was preached by the church ever since. There is a very common saying nowadays that you'll come across, one form or another, Jesus accepts me just the way I am. That's wonderfully true. Because Jesus' death paid for all of your sin, wiped it all out if you come to him. Yeah? There's nothing that you can do that isn't covered by the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice for your sins. It's also dangerously false because the way people take that, accept, is that Jesus will take you and say, yeah, what you do is fine. I don't need you to change. I'm just the way you are. Keep going. That's not true. That, in that sense, it's not true. The door is open to everybody. There's nothing you need to do to get yourself in any position of rightness to Jesus before you can come and ask for forgiveness. But when you ask for forgiveness, there's that repentance saying, I'm going to live your way from now on. I'll make this one my final slide, because I said I'd come back to that bit about the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See that last bit, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. It's not just about a ticket to heaven. We'll be all right eventually, after we die or when Jesus comes back. It's about here and now having God himself come and live in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit comes into us and testifies with our spirit that God is our Father. We actually come to know God here and now. And there's loads of people in here who have done this, who daily speak to God and hear back from God. And God says, I love you, I have forgiven you. We don't get rid of all sin as soon as we, as soon as we receive Jesus, I'm afraid. Um, it's an ongoing process, but we are forgiven for all our sin. Yeah? And if you love Jesus, you'll want to please him, and you'll keep through your life saying, what do you want to do next, Lord? What do you want to take next away from me? Do you want me to sort out my eating? What about my pride? What about the other things? What about the gossip? And you don't do that because Jesus is some... Um, slavish overseer with a whip you do that because you saved me you saved me and I want to do what you want me to do and every sin I get rid of gets me closer to God in a relationship with him because that's what it's I am going to put up the final slide <laughs> if that's all right I'll give the last word to Peter oh no it's gone off I'll just read it oh okay the last word here to Peter Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That was described this morning in the songs as losing chains that bind us. It was described as my sin and my hidden shame dying with Jesus on the cross. This is good news. Yeah, This is good news. We call this, if you don't know, the Christian church calls this the gospel, which is from Old English, God spell which is good news. 
This is good news because you can't do anything about your sin except come to Jesus, and then he will completely clear it. Now, I do apologize. I, I have skipped some stuff, and I've still gone five minutes over. Can I keep going? <laughs> okay. So, we've got time to sing? Yeah, let's have the band back up then. Um, Colin, you choose. <laughs> I, I, did, I, I, gave, I asked Colin for a particular song, um, but the ones he played earlier and the band did earlier were so good that um, I, I'm not going to stick to that if you'd rather do something different. Okay, okay, let's do that. So, how do we respond um, to what I've said? Um, obviously, the first response is repentance. Now, if you are a Christian, you've been walking with Jesus, you're forgiven. You're forgiven, you're clean before God. But there are still things that he would like to deal with in your life. There's still things he'd like to get rid of. He'd like to be closer to him, more like Jesus. The Bible describes it as from glory to glory. You're already glorious. You can be more glorious. And as we sing this song, just pray and say, God, is there something you want to put your finger on that you want to take out of my life? And it may be hard. You may need some help. And there's a pastoral team in this church who exists in part to help you with those things. If you have a struggle, if you have something that is besetting and you can't get rid of, come to someone on that team. In fact, if you want this morning, if you have the courage and you have that, come to the front, we'll find someone to pray. I asked Richard earlier, we'll find someone. Yeah. If you've never come to that first step of repentance, maybe you've never had it clearly said that sin is in your life and you need to be free of it if you want to come to God then your response this morning is to come down and let us pray with you and let us take you through that step I'm not going to make a big long prolonged is that one come on down that's, that's not me I'm hoping that if there is somebody like that here in that situation that God has been speaking to your heart while I have been speaking and telling you this is true and I want you to respond if that's you I'm not going to ask again Colin's not going to ask Just come down the front um, and we'll find someone to pray with you and to lead you through that because that's what the church is for, to come into the love of God that cleanses you. You have been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.